Hi there. I'm Michael Marvash, and this is The Dead Man's Forest, a weekly conversation about the wisdom and knowledge that each of us possesses uniquely based on our own set of experiences and the lessons that we have learned. I've had a number of good conversations this week, but I also spent four days in Vegas for a friend's wedding, and if you've been to Vegas, you know it is not the sort of environment that is conducive to in-depth conversation or introspection or particularly deep thinking. And so while I have had some very interesting and thought-provoking conversations, I haven't necessarily had as much time as I normally do to dive deep into them. And so I'll share with you instead today a few musings that I noticed on my way up the mountain and, and through those those few conversations that I was able to have this week. It's October now, and the fall colors have started to show through in the leaves of the trees down in the city, but also in the desert plants on the road up to the mountain. Here in the forest, it's mostly evergreen trees. So when I look up, it's not so easy to tell that it's fall. But when I look at the ground, the, the browns and the yellows leave no question in my mind. And I think that fall is my favorite season because of those colors, because they are somehow both soft and vibrant at the same time. They're not loud or garish like so many of the artificial colors that we see on a regular basis. They're rich colors to me because they are both beautiful to behold, but at the same time they portend the death and the mortality that lies beneath the surface of all things. The bright greens of the trees that they, they show in the spring and the summer are almost like a mask for these true death colors that are beneath. I think that the, the soft colors of fall that allow the vulnerability of life to show through are just absolutely striking. The thought that occurred to me on the way, on the drive up the mountain, was that, that it is because we die that we are beautiful. Life is beautiful and, and death is inextricably a part of it. And simply looking at the life but ignoring the mortality is, is like only looking at part of a beautiful painting. So I think fall is my favorite season because of the richness, because of the intermingling of life and death that is so evident in the trees and in the desert plants. It reminded me of a, an episode of Radiolab 
that I heard once, which I think was on time, one of the segments of the episode was about this audio engineer who had a niece and every year on her birthday he would visit her and he would record her and he did this from the time that she was born till the time that she was at least 18 I think and of course when she was a baby she was just babbling and just making the noises that babies make but as she got older he started to talk to her and have conversations and she started to articulate her thoughts and talk about the things that she liked and about school and about boys and of course her voice matured over the course of of him doing these recordings and on the radio lab episode they just played a few seconds a few seconds of each year from 1 to 18 and the effect of hearing this little girl grow into a young woman in just a moment was arresting because it was as if all of the potential that is bound up in us when we are babies was unfolding in an instant right before my ears. It was like an auditory version of one of those time-lapse photos of a, of a flower unfurling where you can see it in its infancy and you can see it expanding into its potential and then you can see what it has become and it's simultaneously a joyous experience and a sad one because you can see right there what is becoming but you can also see what's vanishing the innocence of the child of the of the bud of that flower which will never never return and that that richness of experience of joy and sorrow intermingled is the experience of being a parent, of being a friend, of being in a relationship, simply of living life. All of those things happen together. They come in and out of focus, and when they're all there, when we're able to hold them all in our awareness at one time and feel the rich variety of emotions that they evoke in us. It's just a very sublime experience. That emotional experience of joy and sorrow together reminded me of a conversation that I had with a friend where he and I were both fairly intellectual people. And I assume that with as pedantic as Dead Man's Forest can sometimes become, though I try my best to rein it back from getting too much so, I assume that many of you listening are the same way. You're rather intellectual. You maintain at least some emotional distance between yourself and the things that happen in your life on a day-to-day -day basis. 
here's a, here's an example. My partner and I are in the process of reorganizing a lot of things in our home right now. And when she makes an initial effort at reorganizing, at, at organizing a, a drawer or a cabinet or something like that, and and does a great job. It looks fantastic. And when I come to that cabinet or that drawer a few days later to get something out and I realize, oh, this needs to be over here. These things need to be moved because I can't. It's too difficult to get at the things that I need to get at on a regular basis. And and so I'll say that and and she gets upset at me for criticizing her work. And on the flip side, if I make an initial effort at organizing something or putting things together and she comes in later and it's wrong and needs to change around and she criticizes the work that I did, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. It has no bearing on me. And that's the difference, I think, between more intellectual people who maintain that emotional distance, that separation between themselves and the things that they have done and the things that they have put effort into, and people who bind those things together, who pour a lot of themselves into the work that they do. And so when the work is criticized, they interpret it as a criticism of them. Anyway, my friend and I are both these kinds of people, and, and we were talking about how people who are more emotionally invested or people who inject a lot of drama into their life are on this big emotional roller coaster where there are really strong highs of, of satisfaction and pleasure and then really strong lows where things have fallen apart or not gone the way that you hoped. And, and that is the way that they choose to live their lives, to ride that roller coaster up and down. And he and I, by maintaining a little more emotional distance on those things, we, we, we never get quite as high, quite as emotionally happy or excited or stimulated, but we also never go quite as low. We never get as sad or as melancholy or as afraid. And that conversation reminded me of a section from the book The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, which I believe I have mentioned before in Dead Man's Forest. The Prophet is a book that's hard to describe. On the face of it, it's really just one character's... It's, it's one character's just sharing his life lessons with another group of characters who are asking him questions, and they say, tell me what you think about marriage. Tell me what you think about houses. Tell me what you think about clothes. Tell me what you think about work. And the man is... He speaks in almost biblical language. It's somewhere in between prose and poetry in that you can understand that he's trying to speak profound truths and that these truths can't quite be articulated in everyday language. And as an aside, it strikes me that with the prophet Khalil Gibran is perhaps trying to do something that I 
value and am trying to emulate in The Dead Man's Forest, which is speak to big truths about existence as clearly as possible. Many of them transcend the language that we have access to and so must be said using metaphor or symbolism or other imagery and perhaps that is what poetry is but there are definitely poems that I read and think there is some wisdom and sense there that I can figure out even though I may not initially understand what it is and there are other poems that I read that simply sound like nonsense. Perhaps there's nothing wrong with that. Perhaps it's simply different kinds of poetry. But anyway, back to this section of the prophet that I was reminded of. I'll read it to you. Then a woman said, Speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, Your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the selfsame well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? And when you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. And when you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow, and others say, nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, Remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. Verily, you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at a standstill and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and his silver, needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. And that, in turn, reminds me of another book I read called Death Becomes Us by a woman named Pamela Skjolsvich, perhaps. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. With her struggles to come to grips with her own mortality, with her husband's mortality, with her family, with her children's mortality. And the big realization that she has at one point in the book is that the more you love something, the more sorrow you will feel when that thing passes on. Whether it be a person or an object or a place. Everything is temporary. Everything will change or will be lost, will be destroyed or will die. And when that happens, the more love that we had for that thing, the more joy that we felt because of the existence of that thing or that person. To that degree will we feel the sorrow. And those two things are always present 
together if we pay attention. And that brings us back to that rich feeling that I talked about earlier, where we're in, a, in this constant state of having and losing all at the same time. And the only thing that separates the having and the losing is time. And who knows what time is, whether it's real or an illusion. I then wondered about that the Buddhist idea of, what's the word? Of accepting all that is constantly. Of living with no resistance to that sorrow. Of simply saying what is, is, and what is not, is not. And I accept it all. And if my house was to burn down, it would be wonderful because it is what happened. And this to me seems to be like the flat line version of that roller coaster that I talked about earlier. Is that some people, some people who are, who have a very short emotional distance between themselves and the things that happen in their life are up and down, or people who are very dramatic and try to insert conflict into lots of places in their lives, up to, to great highs and down to great lows. And people like me and my friend who maintain a little bit more emotional distance are, are not quite as high, not quite as low. But those Buddhist monks who practice that dispassionate way of being are just constantly on a straight line emotionally. There's very few bumps and dips. And perhaps that's in that is what they call enlightenment, or perhaps it's what they call nirvana. I don't know. I'm not particularly well-versed in my understanding of the Buddhist tradition. And perhaps they simply feel all of that range, the entire range of human experience, constantly and simultaneously. Perhaps it's a very rich emotional experience all the time for them. I don't know. It was simply something that I noted in different ways that people can be. I have a few other ideas that I've just begun to sketch the surface of over the last week. The question, another question that my friend asked me during our conversation was, what is the, what is the balance between thinking about things, as we do here in the Dead Man's Forest, and choosing to take action on things? Because despite the fact that we can't know everything and we often can't know what the right decision to make or the right action to take is, we still make decisions and we still take actions. As I was driving through the city on the way to the mountains, I saw a sign on the side of a theater that was broken. It had a hole punched in it, almost as if someone had, had thrown a rock or something at the sign. And I thought that's a great analogy for this, is that we have that rock in our hand. We are in control of it. We can place it where we want to. And yet as we wind up and throw it and give it momentum, as it leaves our hand, we cease to be in direct control of that rock and instead the universe's forces take over, momentum and gravity and inertia, then dictate where that rock goes 
what happens when it lands or hits something, how much damage is done to the thing it hits and to the rock itself. Those things are not directly within our control. And that's the same way with, with anything, with creating a piece of art. You put in the effort to capture the image that you have in your mind, perhaps, and when you're done, you have a piece of art. And then you put it on the wall in your home, or put it in a gallery, or put it on your website, and these human forces that are outside of you dictate how it will be received. The rules of aesthetics and social pressure and status, popularity and fame, how well known you are, all of those forces now that are outside of you that you have little direct control over now dictate how that piece of art will be received, will be regarded. And that is life, isn't it? I think my natural disposition is to want to try and control as much as possible. And yet at some point, the rock has to leave my hand. The art has to go out into the world to be received the way it will be. And that letting go, in the one case literally, in the second case figuratively, that letting go is part of being alive. If you can't let go, if you just hold on to things, then all you have is a rock in your hand and a piece of art that no one will ever see. The idea of the dead man's forest, with that man sitting there with that forest of knowledge and wisdom in his head and in his heart, but he's sitting in a wasteland. He never let go. He never let go of that wisdom and knowledge. He held it so close so that it couldn't become and it's a false form of life, isn't it? To sit there dead with knowledge and wisdom still inside you that never got out into the world. It's just a shadow of life. And so what I have realized and what I now wrestle with is embracing that process. Embracing that process of doing and letting go and releasing things into the wild into the world to see what happens. So that's all I have for you today. If you have any reactions to any of my scattered thoughts, I would love to hear them. I have a number of conversations with interesting people coming up with Stephen, Nancy, Jason, Pat, and others that I am still trying to get on the schedule to record a conversation with. You could be one of them if you would like to share of your forest, of the knowledge and wisdom that you have. I would love to talk to you. The contact form on my website is always available. Deadmansforest.org is the address. So check it out. Leave me a note. And thanks for being here. Bye-bye.